One of my favorite uh, Easter stories, it actually is around, I th it's, it's maybe an apocryphal story, but it involves a Unitarian Universalist minister and his wife, and he was driving home with his wife after the service on Sunday. He preached you know, two services, and they're in the car ride home, and he turned to his wife and he said, I just wonder, I, I'm just wondering this morning, like how many like, really good, dynamic Easter sermons were preached by my colleagues around, around the country? And she heard him say that, and she paused, and then she looked at him and said, I'll bet it's one less. <laughs> one less than you think it is. One less than you think it is, right? And I share that story uh, because I think it counsels humility um, for, for anybody speaking in front of everyone. Um, and because it comes out of our own tradition, so it's just something there that, that cracks me up, but one less than you think, dear. Uh, and that's kind of how it goes, particularly on Easter, I, because this is, this is a complicated, messy holiday. Like, I, I, I as a preacher, I want to I land something that, la that lives in your life, that lands in your heart, and it's, it's a little bit of a messy holiday for us, and I see some of you waving yourselves, so it's as hot out there as it is up here, apparently. All right, so you can just give your neighbor a little gift and fan them a little bit. Someone come up. No, just don't, don't. Well, we'll just, we'll, we're working on the AC. Here's what's happened there. This holiday's a little, oh, see, look at that. I just said it was hot. Now you guys all have permission. I'm going to do this too. We're going to just wave ourselves here. Easter, complicated. A lot of us Adults and kids are kind of hopped up on some sugar because we got up real early, found some candy, found some eggs, sugared up. We've done the egg hunt or we will do the Easter egg hunt. There's a family gathering that is either going to be awesome or is going to have some tension just right under the surface. Like all of this is part of Easter and then that's um, not even counting the story itself which has to do with a crucifixion, with an empty tomb and a resurrection and honestly, Many of us in this faith tradition don't take that story literally. Some of us do, but many, many of us don't. We are more metaphorical about the resurrection, this rebirth in this life, this life that exists within this life, not some life after we die. So what do we make of this story? Given all of that, what do we make of this story? How does it live in us? How do we or not live in us? What's our relationship with this story? That's what I want to explore. And before we jump into that this morning in a way we might think of this story, I just want to share some background, some basics of this story. The backdrop to Easter is that Jesus, a brown-skinned Middle Eastern Jew, has been crucified by the Roman Empire with support from various Jewish leaders. Jesus has been charged with treason. He is saying that the real ruler of the empire, his ultimate authority is God and is this vision for a beloved community. It's not the emperor or the Roman empire. So he's charged with treason and he's charged with blasphemy by the religious authorities of Jerusalem. He's nailed to a cross on the hill, in the hillside, a symbol for everyone in that community of what happens when you defy authority. His message and ministry silenced. In Marcus Borg's book, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, Borg explains how the pre-Easter Jesus was a world-subverting wisdom teacher, a social prophet, and a movement builder. The message of the pre-Easter Jesus was not about believing in him. He didn't run from little community to little community saying, hey, y'all, here's a secret. Believe in me. 
He said, I want you to believe in this vision of beloved community. I want you to believe in a vision that God has for the world where justice is alive, where those who are not in power have a stake in what happens to them. Imagine this turned upside down world where everyone has a place at the table. That's what I want you to believe in, is what Jesus said as he went around and talked to people. He spoke and acted out of the politics of compassion. He railed and rallied against what he saw as the great evil of his time, the politics of purity, the rules and regulations that compromised people's dignity and worth, that marginalized them. His whole movement included women and people who were considered untouchable and people who were maimed, people who were on the margins of the community. In a society that was ordered by these very strict purity codes, like who you can be with, who you can touch, who is acceptable, who is not, his movement was radically inclusive. That vision, that movement was taking root and the crucifixion was meant to silence that. So that's the backstory. And I wonder this morning, what if we see the resurrection story as less about bodily resurrection and eternal life, and more instead about a commentary about what it means to be silenced and unable to speak one's truth, which can feel like a kind of death, and what happens when we find our voice and the courage to speak our truth, which can feel like a kind of resurrection, new life, if you will. What if speaking one's deepest truth can return us to life, can connect us with that divine spirit that is everywhere in this world that speaks through the poet and the author and the potter? What if speaking our truth connects us with that divine spirit that animates this world? What if breaking silence is a kind of resurrection, an overcoming of a death-like state? Rebecca Solnit, in her book of essays, The Mother of All Questions, argues that silence is the universal condition of oppression. She reminds us, and this is a quote from her, that it was in opposition to slavery that American feminism arose born at that intersection. Here's the story. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a woman who listened to a lot of Unitarian ministers, went to the world's anti-slavery convention in London in 1840, she was one of many women, women abolitionists who went to this convention, who traveled there to participate. And once she arrived there, all of the women were essentially told, there's not a seat for you here, nor can you speak at this convention. So white men, this was white men who considered themselves totally champions of the oppressed, right? They're trying to end slavery. They could not see what was so oppressive about this order that had existed and seemed natural to them. So finally, after a lot of back and forth, the women were seated in this separate area with a curtain separating them from the main gathering so that they could listen to the men who were speaking but not participate in the conversation. Elizabeth Cady Stanton went home furious. And that fury at being silenced, at being shut out, it gave rise to the women's rights movement. It's important to note as I talk about her as a champion of the women's rights movement, that when she talked about women and when she talked about the women's rights movement, she primarily meant women like her. So white, middle-class, educated women who had property, women who were probably Protestant or Protestant culturally. 
We can't gloss over that fact. But what's also true is that Elizabeth Cady Stanton felt crucified, if you will, at this convention in 1840 and felt like she was in this suffocating space, this tomb where she could not speak her truth. Resurrection came in the form of Stanton finding her voice, declaring and defending her personhood, speaking her truth, and then partnering with Susan B. Anthony to work for women's rights and the right to vote. She wasn't perfect, none of us are, and her view of women's rights certainly left some people on the sidelines, but her life took on a fuller expression, a deeper shine when she found her voice and her truth. Think of this for a minute. Think in your own lives, the heaviness and the death-like feeling when you have a truth, a deep truth, something you want to say, to share, and it feels like you can't say it out loud. Maybe you tried to share this story as a child or as a youth or as an adult. Maybe you had the courage to name the story, your truth, your experience, and were essentially told, be quiet. We don't talk about those things. Stop. Or maybe you shared your truth, your truth as a woman, your truth as a person of color, your truth as a white person, and you were told, you're overreacting. You're, you're being a little bit dramatic and hysterical and that's not really what happened. You're not really understanding the dynamics here. Let me explain what happened to you. Or worse, perhaps you spoke and someone said to you, don't bother talking about that. No one will believe you. All of those things, and I know there are many, many more, that can feel like a kind of death, like a kind of life being just squeezed out of you as you silently hold this truth, this experience of profound importance and significance in your life. In the transformation of silence and language, excuse me, in the transformation of silence into language and action, Audre Lorde, a self-described black lesbian poet warrior says this, I have come to believe over and over again that what is most important to me must be spoken, made verbal and shared, even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood. The speaking profits me beyond any other effect. And she asks in this piece, what are the words you do not yet have? What do you need to say? What are the tyrannies you swallow day by day and attempt to make your own until you will sicken and die of them still in silence. Audre Lorde goes on, and of course I am afraid, she says, because the transformation of silence into language and action is an act of self-revelation and that always seems fraught with danger. But my daughter, says Audre Lorde, when I told her of my difficulty, this fear I have of speaking, said to me, you're never really a whole person if you remain silent. Because there's always that one little piece inside you that wants to be spoken out, and if you keep ignoring it, it gets madder and madder and hotter and hotter, and if you don't speak it out one day, it will just up and punch you in the mouth from the inside. It gets madder and madder and hotter and hotter, and if you don't speak your truth, then one day it'll up and punch you in the mouth 
from the inside. And of course there is fear about speaking one's truth. Of course there is, because the crucifying powers of this world want to silence, want to kill the voices that speak truth to power, the voices that create conflict because they see a different way the world could be, those voices that reveal a radically different way we might be with one another. But people still find the courage to speak. They still find the courage to speak, even as the silencing of those voices, even as crucifixion happens in many, many ways. It can look like this, the silencing of voices, a crucifixion. It can look like the stubborn insistence that the motto really should be, all lives matter, and all lives do matter. Of course they do. And failing to recognize that although that is true, all lives matter, that expression, that response puts to the side the lived experiences of people of color and native people and black people. Silencing can come in the form of personal attack. Think just a couple of weeks ago at the Capitol when Representative Melissa Hortman from the House floor during the debate of a bill called out a group of white men who were playing cards in the room that apparently you shall not speak of. If you're following this story, you know what I'm talking about. On the House floor, she said, she called out this group of white men who were missing the testimony of women of color, their experiences of protesting as a way toward a more just world, powerful emotional testimony. And she said to her white colleagues who were in this reclining room or resting room, whatever it's called, who were playing cards, I see you. You're not present. You're not listening. And the attack on her was quick and fierce and brutal. Lawmakers called her a racist. They demanded an apology from her, and they essentially wanted to erase that critique, erase her voice. But she continued to speak. She continued to disrupt the status quo. Those are the ways silencing can happen. And I will also say in these days when old structures, when old habits, old patterns of misogyny and racism and classism, when those are being named and challenged and called out and interrogated, when new voices are starting to speak their truths, depending on your gender, depending on your racial identity, it might feel like you're dying, like you're under attack, like your control of the world as you have known it is ending. When women finally got the vote in 1920, I'm sure there were many, many men who thought things were about to get out of control, right, as women actually had a voice and power at the ballot box. During the Civil Rights Movement, many white folks called out for Dr. King saying, hey, go a little slower. Don't, don't be so aggressive here. Um, your people are getting a little bit uppity. We, we know that things aren't equal and that we need to work for equality, but slow that down just a little bit so the white majority is not upset with you all. But Dr. King would not be silent. And what I want to suggest to you is that even in difficult moments when you are not silent, a new kind of life, a resurrection, if you will, is possible. When someone is truly heard, when voices that have historically not been heard or listened to, when those fill the airwaves and the public discourse and our papers and the streets, there is a new life 
that is possible. Think of this, think of this in your own life and the people you know and love. Think about this journey over the last few years as marriage equality has become the law of the land. Think of the new life, the resurrection, if you will, in couples whose love is now legally seen and recognized and they can live that out loud and fully. Think of it. Think of the new life that emerges when someone fully claims their transgender identity and they are loved and supported in that. Think of the new life that emerges when with curiosity and compassion we begin to examine the white supremacy culture that is around us and commit to dismantling that culture. Think of the new life you feel when you are really deeply heard or when you really deeply hear someone else. As Rebecca Solnit says, liberation is always in part a storytelling process. Breaking stories, breaking silences, making new stories. A free person tells her own story. A valued person lives in a society in which the story, their story, has a place. Jesus died on the cross because he refused to be silent because he was telling a story that said, everyone, everyone has a place. And after his death, that story could have gone silent. The messenger had been murdered, but his followers found their voices. And despite grief and despair and hopelessness, they began to embody the politics of compassion, embody that radical inclusive love. Those things did not get crucified those stories continue to be told. And so, my dear congregation, in this hot space where I notice a few of you fanning yourselves still, what I wanna say to you on this Easter Sunday, what I wanna suggest to you about how the story might live in us, is that when silence is broken, silence about addiction, Silence about abuse. Silence about living with mental illness. Silence about living with depression. Silence about living in poverty. Silence about living with racism and white supremacy culture. Silence around gender identity. When those silences are broken, as we speak and listen deeply to one another and hear our truths, we liberate ourselves and one another. There is resurrection in breaking silence. And so may we speak courageously and fearlessly. May we listen courageously and fearlessly. And may each of us, holy candles that we are, shine with the light of love and the glow of beloved community. May it be so. Happy Easter. I love you. Amen.